All right, what's up, Lake Point family? Great to see you guys. Uh, my name is Mike, in case we never met before, and I get the privilege of being on the teaching team around this place. I want to welcome all of our campuses and those of you that might be joining us online as well. So grateful we get to do this together. And man, I hope you all have had a great summer. You guys had a good summer? Uh, our family had a great summer. I've, I've been teaching a lot of different places, but also had some time to get away. We, we take a trip every year, our whole family, extended family. Uh, I, I don't, wouldn't call it a vacation. It's a trip because uh, there's 31 of us in the same house for a week. Yeah, this year we had 13 adults and 18 kids, and 11 of those kids were under seven. It's just craziness. It's just, it's just nonstop action. It's a, it's a lot of fun. We love hanging out together, obviously. But we all have our role uh, during the week. Uh, like my nephew, he's the, he's the guy that drives the pontoon boat all the time. And my, uh, my daughter-in-law usually floats in the water and helps kids put skis on and gets them back on the tube and that kind of stuff. And uh, my son is constantly putting worms on hooks for kids that are you know, trying to catch bluegill and stuff. And my wife and my sister-in-law, they make grocery runs like every day, bringing food back. Uh, but my role is, uh, is this. Now, I know, I know that some of y'all are really good at grilling and some of you even smoke meats, right? Like my son, he's a meat smoker. But when, on, when I'm on that trip, this is my kingdom. This is what I do. This is my sword and this is my scepter, and this is where I rule. Now actually today, I'm gonna try to uh, cook some brats up here while I teach, and uh, hopefully <laughs> I won't burn the place down <laughs> and set the sprinkler system off or anything like that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna attempt to do this, and what, I, what I'm hoping will happen is that the aroma from this grill will just fill the room and make y'all super hungry today and maybe teach us a lesson along the way as well. We're gonna be in Daniel chapter four today. Uh, it's in the Old Testament of the Bible. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that. If you've got an app that you use, use that. Or we're gonna put on the screens as well today so we can all track along together. Uh, Pastor Josh has been leading us through this fascinating study uh, about the life of Daniel and talking about being a light, being a difference maker uh, in a very dark and challenging place. And not just surviving, uh, but actually thriving in a, in a place called Babylon. Uh, if you missed the first two weeks of the series, you got to get online, check them out. They were so, so good. Because here's the deal. We all have a Babylon. And we all have an opportunity to make a positive, God-honoring difference there. But standing in the way of that happening is this thing that's lurking in all of us. In fact, it's the same thing that the king of Babylon had lurking in him. It's this thing that makes us think we actually have a kingdom. It's this thing that keeps us from apologizing. It's, it's this thing that won't let us, uh, let us admit it when we're wrong. We, we won't stop and ask for directions. It's, it's this thing that keeps us arguing even when the point is pointless and even though we're wrong. It's this thing that makes us defensive and judgmental and causes us to like power up on people. It's this thing that refuses to be vulnerable or show weakness. It's this thing that makes us stiff-arm people who are trying to help us. It's this thing that makes us cross our arms and say, I just don't want to hear it. I just don't want to hear it. It's this thing that keeps us running and competing at unhealthy levels. It's this dastardly thing that causes us to even lie about our past, to exaggerate our accomplishments, to enhance our social media profile, to make us crave likes, to make us lie about our age, our weight, our, our, pat our resumes. It's this thing that keeps us from learning new things. 
It's this thing that forces us to cheat instead of lose. It won't let us celebrate when other people win. It even makes us feel good when somebody else fails. It's this thing in us that makes us buy stuff to impress people. This thing stands in the way of not only our relationship with other people, but also our relationship with God. And ironically, along the way, it does a real number on us too. Anybody want to guess what this dastardly thing I'm talking about is? Yeah, pride. Now, please don't misunderstand when I'm talking about pride. I'm I'm not talking about having a healthy self-esteem or a healthy self-image. I'm not talking about, oh, I'm so proud of my kids. I'm not talking about that feeling of, wow, I think I actually accomplished something significant here. Those are good and healthy feelings. I'm talking about that puffed-up sense of self-importance, selfishness, arrogance, and overinflated ego. Now, the person looking back at us from the mirror would never call it that, and that's the problem. You know, last week we were introduced to the king of Babylon, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, and you talk about a guy with an out-of-control ego. So as we talk about him today, let me show, let me show you what I got going on over here. I kind of arranged the, uh, the brats in a certain way. I think we got a picture of what I got going on in the grill. I just thought that as we talk about King Nebuchadnezzar that we would talk about you and I just kind of humbly laying our ego on the altar. You know, back in the day, people would offer sacrifices to God. And all God has ever wanted was ourself. So today, we're going to talk about laying our ego on the altar. And hopefully, this will be a fragrant, fragrant aroma uh, to God. Um, Let me give you some quick historical background here. Uh, Josh has already kind of gone through this. But in 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire besieged Jerusalem and they take the best young men from Israel and they enroll them in their leadership academy. And Josh talked all about that, how these four guys, these four young Jewish guys, they rise to the top, namely Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and if you were, uh, grew, up, grew up on Veggie Tales, you know them as Rakshak and Benny, you'll hear much more about them next week. But they all resolve in their heart that they're just going to live for God in a humble way, in a grateful way in the middle of a, of a godless culture. And their stories are absolutely inspiring. Now, to avoid spoiler alert for the coming weeks, let's just say that Nebuchadnezzar has this on-again, off-again thing going on with God. And I get it. Because when you're the emperor of the world, when, when you are the man, and you have everybody telling you that you are not only the man, but you are like a god, it's really hard to put your ego on the altar and let God be God. So Daniel has this gift that God gave him to interpret dreams. And because of it, and because of his work ethic and his stellar attitude and character, Daniel gets elevated to the top advisor to the king. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar one night has a dream that really, really scares him to death. And in the dream, he hears a messenger from heaven declare this confusing and disturbing announcement, which concludes by the messenger saying, verse 17 of Daniel 4, the purpose of this decree is that the whole world may understand that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of humans. Now hang on to that profound sentence. The Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Well, the king is a bit freaked out by this dream, so he calls Daniel in and tells him the very detailed dream that included this vision of of a huge tree. And Daniel listens to the dream, and as he does, his face turns pale, and he wants to throw up. And the king sees that it's messing with Daniel, 
Uh, so he says, come on now. Come on, I can't be that bad because after all, I am the man. And Daniel's thinking to himself, yeah, and that's, and that's the problem. So Daniel takes a deep breath and says, and I love the spirit of this because I think it reveals a lot about Daniel's heart and about Daniel's character. He says, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my Lord, not to you. And Josh touched on this last weekend. I think this is just so cool that Daniel really cares about this guy who is obviously far from God. I mean, even though Daniel has had unspeakable things happen to him, even though he's in a place he'd rather not be, even though he's working a job he would rather not work, he genuinely loves and shows respect for this guy that he works for. I think there's a huge lesson in there for all of us. Daniel goes on, he says, the tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high to the heavens for the whole world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, that tree, that's you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Now the expanse of this tree, the Babylonian empire at that time, stretched out from what we know today as Egypt to eastern Iran, western Iran, from modern Saudi Arabia into Syria, encompassing many different cultures and language groups. It really was like this huge tree branching out and giving life and providing sustenance to the ends of the earth as they knew it back then. And then it gets really real. And Daniel goes on, he says, then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. However, leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a bound of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. And Daniel swallows hard, takes a deep breath and says, um, this is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that. And here's that line we've already seen. Until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. And he gives them to anyone he chooses. Now, however, the stump and the, and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. So please, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what's right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you'll continue to prosper. Please don't fall prey to thinking that you're the man, or worse than that, that you're a god. Humble yourself, repent of your sin, and honor the one true God by being kind and generous to all people. Now, in the moment, it seems to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Truth spoken in love tends to do that. But then a year goes by, and it's apparent that nothing has changed within the guy. You know that profound statement that's used in recovery groups, you know, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So 12 months after the dream, 12 months after this warning was given, he's walking on the palace roof, phenomenal panoramic view from, 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 from there. Two of the seven wonders of the ancient world were in the ancient city of Babylon, the magnificent hanging gardens of Babylon. You probably heard of that. He, he uh, built that for his wife and the impressive city walls. Historians said that the city walls stretched for more than eight kilometers and had enough space for a four-horse chariot to turn around on top of it. 
I mean, magnificent city. So he's walking around on the palace roof. He thumps his chest and says, look at my vast kingdom, my great city, my royal residence that I have built for the splendor of my majesty. It's kind of like that scene in a movie where the music in the soundtrack changes to a minor key and it starts to get real ominous. Or, or think of it this way. Remember the old school Nintendo on, on uh, 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 Mario Brothers? Remember that? When you, did you ever play that? You know, it's a real cheerful song. And then it all of a sudden it changes. You know what I'm talking about? That's what this scene is like here. It's the scene in the movie when, he, when you go, dude, you should not have said that. Verse 31, while these words were still in his mouth, while these words were still in his mouth about my majesty and my splendor, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields of the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. The message from heaven comes down and says, listen, the Most High is in charge and you, O King, will be totally dependent upon his grass for your nourishment. You will live unsheltered from the elements that he created in his world. You will wake up drenched with the dew of heaven. You'll be reminded that his hand is upon you. Perhaps if a man who thinks he is a God becomes like a beast, he'll realize he's just a man. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. And he lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. But that's what pride does to people. Remember that decree in the dream, the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world? And he gives them to anyone he chooses? Listen, gang, any, any power that we've been given any prestige that we have received, any positions that we may have ascended to, all of our possessions, they're all temporary gifts from the Most High God, our good, good Father. And when we live humbly and grateful for those things, our lives just flourish. But when you're full of pride and ego, you can't see that reality. You think it all came from you, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. The number seven in, in the Bible is a number used for completion. And we don't actually know how long uh, the king's misery lasts, but whenever that seven periods pass, it says this. And this is the king now. He's writing in his own words in Daniel 4. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? Yes, when my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as the head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. So now I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All of his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. And that's the last we know of his 43 years slightly interrupted reign. And I don't know, but maybe humility finally became the guiding principle of his life. Man, I, I, would, I would like to think so. All because a guy like Daniel loved him enough to tell him the truth, and God loved him enough to downsize him. So he closes out his life with, I'm just a king. He is the king, and all of his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble those who are proud. I better uh, check on these broads. <clears throat> Can you all smell these? It, sm it smells so good up here, I'm telling you that. James, uh, James, who was Jesus' brother, he, uh, he, he puts it like this. He, he, he says, God actually opposes the proud. That, that word oppose is a really strong word. It's, it means that God actually sets himself up against the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. You know, two-year-olds can't, can't say a whole lot, but they master a couple of words pretty early on, Right? One of the words they master is no, right? They're able to say no. What's the other word they learn really quickly? Mine, right? Mine, that's mine, right? That's what toddlers say. And we get fooled into thinking that when we flex our self-importance, it makes us all big and bad and glorious, but in reality, it just shrinks us back to toddler status. Whenever we say mine, it just makes us feel super small. I, I witnessed a guy the other day just going on and on about something he did. He was exaggerating things to make it sound more impressive, more dramatic, make himself look more important. He even dropped a name or two into the story for the wow factor. I'm telling you, as he went on, it made him look so small. Now, the good news is I recognized it and later apologized. And uh, I talked to God about it, and I'm pretty embarrassed to use myself right now as an illustration about the smallness of pride. But didn't you think how small it made Nebuchadnezzar sound when he bragged about my kingdom and my glory and my majesty and my splendor? Saying me and my and mine, it just makes us all look tiny. It shrinks our capacity for goodness. It weakens our encouragement muscles, and we find it hard to give a compliment or receive one for that matter. You can't hear what you need to hear, and you can't give what needs to be given. Our pride, our ego, shrinks us right back to toddler size as we go through life saying, mine. And eventually, your ego becomes a self-imposed prison. I'm just telling you, it'll lock you up in solitary confinement. It's as almost as if you're banished from society, like eating grass and drenched with dew. Your, your ego becomes this dark and lonely cell that keeps you in and everybody else out, including God. There's so much of you in your life that there's just no room for anybody else. And it's a crummy way to live your life. You do remember what ego stands for, right? Ego stands for edging God out. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. It says in Psalm chapter 10, verse 4, in his pride, the wicked man or wicked woman does not seek him. In all their thoughts, there's, there's just no room for God. A person can get so full of himself, so full of herself, that there's just no room for God. Y'all know how a narcissist changes a light bulb? They just stand still, let the world revolve around them. And now you and I wouldn't say that out loud. 
but we can start living like I really am the center of the universe. It's why the Bible says God opposes the proud. It's why the Bible says God detests pride. It keeps us from experiencing his leadership and his wisdom and his power and his love and his acceptance, which he knows could change everything in our life. And pride cheats us out of love. Debbie and I have been married now for uh, 40 years, and uh, I can tell you one thing. Her ego has been the number one contributor to every breakdown we've ever had. Now, you know that's not true. But every battle we've ever had pretty much revolved around selfishness, just wanting our way. Pride definitely reduces our capacity to give and receive love. We start walking into rooms like, here I am, instead of, oh, there you are. It has a way of devaluing other people. You're always sizing up the room and ranking everybody with yourself always at the top. It gets really, really hard for you to say those phrases that are crucial for any relationship. Phrases like, I love you, it's hard to come out of your mouth. I'm proud of you, I need you, I was wrong, I'm sorry. You become controlling and intimidating and everybody in your world is walking on eggshells around you. I mean, they wanna say, dad, you, mom, you, uh, honey, you, uh, boss, you, uh, coach, you, but they're too afraid because your pride has diminished your capacity to give and receive love. And that's why all of us need to learn how to lay our ego on the altar. Now let me uh, contrast this story of Nebuchadnezzar with another king. There was a king named Jesus. You might have heard of him. He taught and modeled this radical version of humility that puts pride in its place. In fact, Jesus totally redefined greatness. He said greatness is actually something you descend into. There's a really awesome passage of scripture. We're not going to look at the whole thing, but it's over in Philippians chapter two in the back of the New Testament of the Bible. And this passage actually became one of the famous, favorite worship songs of the early church. It was a hymn that reminded them to embrace Jesus' radical approach to humility and to put their ego on the altar just every day. And this is the way it starts. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. This is how you begin to lay your ego on the altar. You choose to embrace the same radical approach to humility that Jesus chose. You walk through life with the same mindset of Jesus. You roll out of bed every day making a conscious decision and asking the Holy Spirit of God to remind you throughout the day that you are not Mike Almighty, that you are not the king and you don't have a kingdom, that you are not the center of the universe. You say, today in regard to my own self-importance, today in regard to my own ego, I choose to have the same mindset as Jesus who really is the center of the universe. So Jesus says, follow me. Learn from me. Learn from Nebuchadnezzar. Don't allow pride to continue to screw up your life and make you small and cheat you out of love and keep you in solitary confinement. Lay your ego on the altar and be free to walk in humility and grace. There's a few questions that have helped me with this stuff and they may help you as well. I think you start by asking the question, in what ways does pride play out in me? In what ways does pride play out in me specifically? Now, if you don't know the answer to that, I guarantee you somebody else will. So ask them, what do you see? You think I got a pride problem? 
if they get real quiet and like look at the ground and uh, kind of, you know, shuffle their feet, you got your answer. But just be honest. Ask God, ask somebody else, ask yourself, uh, how does it play out in me? I mean, do I exaggerate? Uh, do I do the humble brag thing? Do I get defensive? Do I, do I get consumed with how I look? Do I compare the number of Twitter followers somebody else have? Do, do, do I have trouble showing affection? Do I have a hard time showing weakness? Do I have a hard time asking for help? Is it pride that keeps me from being vulnerable and getting the kind of help that I need? Just be honest and invite God to the process, asking, asking him, search me, oh God. What's in here that needs to get fixed? What does pride look like in me? Then the second question I have found helpful is this. How does pride disguise itself in me? See, pride is really good at masquerading. Pride will kind of fake you out. You think you're being humble, but when you think you're being humble, you're really being proud. I heard this really, really arrogant guy on a sports talk radio the other day. I was driving him a truck, and I heard this guy bantering with a caller. And he was talking, he was kind of yelling at the guy, talking about he was, I'm, I'm not arrogant, I'm just confident. And I thought, nope, you're just arrogant. Because pride can disguise itself with intellect, with wit, with sarcasm, fashion, fitness, religion, ethnicity, financial status, even false humility. You can even do good things, noble things, generous things, kind things, and still make it all about you, craving recognition and thanks and applause and praise. Honey, did you see how I served you today? You get real honest and you ask, in what ways does pride disguise itself in me? And then the big question you ask is this. How much longer am I going to let pride control me? How much longer am I going to put up with this? Why would I continue to let this known assassin continue to take open shots at me? When am I finally going to embrace the liberating lifestyle of Jesus and put my ego on the altar and just walk free from myself? I love what it says about Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. It says, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. You know, I played basketball uh, most of my life, and one of the things I always loved about basketball, no matter where you, where you go, there's, the trash talk is involved in it. And uh, I've just been praying that maybe today you'd have a little resolve to get after this thing called pride and ego, and maybe even like talk a little trash, talk a little smack to it. Maybe you say, hey, pride, hey, pride, check this out, man. I'm sick of you cheating me out of life. I'm tired of you cheating me out of love and joy. You are not my boss. You are not the center of the universe. You are not my ruler. You're not my king. You got nothing. Hey, pride, watch this. I'm going to go over there and help that person and not expect any thank you or pats on the back. In fact, no one will ever know anything about it. And check this out. I'm going to ask my coworkers and my boss to forgive me for my bad attitude. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to walk over there right now. Watch this. I'm going to walk over there right now, and I'm going to tell my son how proud I am of him. Even though he didn't follow the career path I thought he should, even though he didn't play the sport that I played, and I, you know what else? I'm going to brag on my daughter. I'm going to tell her I love her because it's been way too long since those words came out of my mouth. And you know what else? Watch this, pride. I'm going to hold hands with my wife. Yeah. I'm going to either give her the remote control. Check that out. Take that, pride. Yo, ego, check this out. <clears throat> I'm going to write that person a letter. I'm going to finally let that old grudge go. And watch this. I'm going to finally get some help. Yeah. 
I'm finally going to admit that I got an addiction because I'm tired of you telling me, oh, you can handle it. It's not a big deal because the truth is it is a big deal and I cannot handle it. And you know what else? I'm going to marriage counseling and I'm going to get some help with my finances. And guess what else I'm going to do? I'm going to get baptized. Yeah, I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to let him lead my life and I'm going to start walking with God every single day. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to start talking to God like he is God and not me because I'm sick of you controlling me. So, so long self, good riddance pride, later ego, we are through. You know, I love the, the huge contrast to the Nebuchadnezzar story that's found in this last paragraph of that passage in Philippians 2 about Jesus. This is what happened as a result of Jesus' humble approach to life. It's so, so different than Nebuchadnezzar. It says, therefore, because of his humility, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The best way up is down. And when you and I realize that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and he gives them to anyone he chooses, when we lay our ego on the altar and embrace humility, we become this fragrant aroma to God. I mean, pride stinks. Humility, God says, oh man, that smells really, really good. So what do you say we continue to lay our ego on the altar and be a light in a dark place and become a fragrant aroma to God? I wanna, I wanna lead us all through a little prayer time today and all of our campuses, those of you that are online as well, um, just kind of a little focus prayer. So I, I found it helpful when I'm praying about something like this, uh, just to kind of take a humble position. And uh, sometimes I just turn my palms up in a kind of a spirit of surrender. So if you feel comfortable doing that, you can. If not, it's not a big deal, but that just helps me. And I'm gonna ask you just to bow your head and I'll just lead you through some specific prayer that you can just kind of say in your own way, but I'll just lead, lead us through it. And maybe, maybe we could start by saying, God, would, would you just drive selfishness out of my life? especially as it relates to my family right now. Help me to put my ego on the altar and empty myself and choose the same attitude that Jesus had. And maybe you could pray, God, would you drive selfishness out of my life as it relates to my friends? Because it causes me to be envious and jealous, it's preventing me from truly rejoicing with people who rejoice. Would you just drive selfishness out of my friendships? Maybe you could pray, God, would you just drive selfishness out of my marriage? Because my ego has gotten way out of control and I am only responsible for what I bring. And I don't want to bring ego anymore. I don't want to bring self-interest. I don't have to be right. I don't want to bring any self-centeredness. I just want to bring a humble self, a servant, a surrendered self to my marriage.
Maybe you could pray, God, would you drive selfishness out of my workplace? Because i got to go back to work tomorrow. And uh, just being really honest, God, I've been thinking a whole lot lately about me. What about me? And I just need to surrender that to you. And ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to give me joy tomorrow. And like Daniel, just choose a non-complaining, great attitude as I go to work, knowing that you're the boss, not me. I'm asking you to shape me into the right person in that place. Or maybe your prayer would be, God, I'm asking you to drive selfishness out of my relationships at school. Because sometimes, God, I can, I can get real self-centered, even judgmental toward other people. Help me not to focus so much on me. Show me ways to serve other people this semester so I can take the same attitude that Jesus had to school with me. Perhaps we could all pray, God, in my church, I pray that I would never be the reason for a lack of unity or oneness, that I would never hinder community. God, would you drive away from me any selfish ambition or vain conceit? Help me to see the people sitting in a row with me as better than myself. Give me the power to honor other people, to attach a high price tag to them. Forgive me for the times, God, that I have tried to be the great somebody. Father, together today, we just renounce our King Nebuchadnezzar ways. And we choose to embrace the lifestyle that King Jesus had. We're ready to lay our ego on the altar, and we ask for the Holy Spirit to remind us throughout the day when our pride starts to rear its ugly head that you are the Most High. And that the best way up is to descend into greatness to serve. Because we want to live free. And we want to live lightly and graciously. So like Jesus, we just lay down ourself today. And we pray all this in his name.